As a decentralized and open source project adopted by many programmers and proponents around the world, many intelligent people have dedicated their careers to Bitcoin. It's hard to find a more voracious group of people than those in the Bitcoin community, and increasingly over time, Wall Street money has poured in as well. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible and happy all-time high. Holy crap, it has just exploded uh, through the resistance and is just on a tear right now and still going uh, as I record this. Um, and uh, I think it's going to be a hell of a week and a hell of the rest of 2020. Um, and Jesus, we better have our seatbelts buckled because 2021 is going to be one of the biggest and most important years in Bitcoin, possibly in all of its history. And what's funny is part two of our piece today uh, hits some of the reasons why I think. She doesn't actually go into it um, specifically around Bitcoin, but just talking about the restructuring of the global monetary system. And that is what we are reading uh, today. We are getting into part two of Lynn Alden's The Fraying of the Petrodollar System. So if you haven't listened to yesterday's episode, you you are missing the first half of this piece. So uh, make sure you go back and do that first. This one is amazing and it's really dense. So you don't want to miss it. All right, a quick thank you to our awesome sponsors for the podcast today before we dive into the piece. Uh, for your Bitcoin banking services and a free exchange with no fees, we have the amazing Level.co. That's L-V-L.co. They're in 28 states across the U.S. and counting. Then we have the standard in Bitcoin security for your savings, an open source and easy-to-use hardware wallet. That is the Bitbox O2. Honestly, out of the seven that I have so far, it's really, in my opinion, the best for somebody new to the space. And then lastly, for a mobile solution to holding your own keys, we have the Hexa Wallet. Multiple accounts, it's privacy preserving, two-factor, transaction batching, custom fees, just tons of great features and they are still in beta, so many updates and new features to come. You can check out all three of our awesome sponsors at guyswan.com. Now let's go ahead and get into Lynn Alden's amazing piece, The Continuation of the Fraying of the Petrodollar System, starting with Part 3, The Fraying of the Petrodollar System. As I explained before, each global monetary system begins to suffer from a form of entropy. Where order falls into disorder as inherent flaws in the system manifest themselves over time. For the Bretton Woods system, the flaw was the persistent reduction in U.S. gold reserves against a growing amount of external liabilities, leading to an eventual inability to maintain the convertibility of dollars into gold. For the petrodollar system, the flaw is the persistent trade deficits that the U.S. has to run with the rest of the world in order to supply the world with dollars that they must use for energy pricing. 
the U.S. ends up outsourcing large portions of its industrial base and in the process builds up a massive deficit in its net international investment position as the foreign sector owns an increasing share of U.S. assets. In other words, the flaw in the Bretton Woods system was about the United States capital account, whereas the flaw in the petrodollar system is about the United States current account. A detailed 2017 paper by the BIS called Trifon, Dilemma or Myth, examines the validity of Trifon's dilemma from multiple angles, agrees with aspects and disagrees with other aspects, and restates it and reapplies it in multiple scenarios. In that paper is a good summary of what this updated, quote, current account Trifon dilemma proposes. Quote, the most common version of Trifon shifts his thesis from the capital account to the current account. It posits that the reserve currency country must run, or at least does run, persistent current account deficits to provide the rest of the world with reserves dominated in its currency. Zhao, 2009, Kemdesis and Ickard, 2011, Paul Volcker in Feldstein, 2013, Prasad, 2013. In doing so, it becomes more indebted to foreigners until the risk-free asset ceases to be risk-free. As applied to the United States, the current account version of Trifon runs as follows. The global accumulation of dollar reserves requires the United States to run a current account deficit. Since desired reserves rise with world-dominated GDP, which is growing faster than U.S. nominal GDP, the growth of dollar reserves will raise U.S. external indebtedness unsustainably. Either the United States will not run the current account deficits, leading to an insufficiency of global reserves, or U.S. indebtedness will rise without limit, undermining the value of the dollar and the reserves dominated in it. End quote. Then, in the end, the paper concludes, quote, while there is much to argue with Trifon and those who invoke his dilemma, there is no arguing the dilemmas posed by a national currency that is used globally as a store of value, unit of account, and means of payment. The reserve currency is a global public good provided by a single country, the U.S., on the basis of domestic needs. Padua Schiopa emphasizes the awkwardness of national control from a global perspective but the global use of the dollar can pose dilemmas to the United States. How should the Federal Reserve respond to instability in the markets for $10.7 trillion in dollar debt of non-banks outside the United States, or in a like amount of forward contracts requiring dollar payments? The central bank ignores such instability at the peril of possible turmoil in U.S. dollar markets that does not stop at the border even if the floating rate index for dollar debts is brought back from London to New York. Yet, the Federal Reserve responds to such instability at the peril of seeming to overreach its mandate. Issues arising from one country's supplying most of the world's reserve currency are not going away. End quote. A system without a purpose. For a while, the petrodollar system made a degree of sense, despite its trade balance flaws. Unable to maintain gold backing in the previous system, policymakers managed to give order to an all-fiat system. The United States was the biggest economy in the world and the biggest importer of commodities, so our currency was the only one, quote, big enough to be used for the global oil trade. 
In addition, as macro analyst Luke Groman, who in recent years has specialized in analyzing the petrodollar system and the U.S. fiscal situation, has pointed out that the first two decades of the petrodollar system overlapped with the Cold War. So the system helped strengthen U.S. hegemonic power in a divided world. Love it or hate it, the geopolitical intentions of the system architects were clear. From the 1990s onwards, after the Soviet Union fell, as Grauman and others have argued, the system has made less sense and has resulted in more U.S. military involvement than need be, to put it lightly, as the U.S. indirectly seeks to defend its hegemonic role without a clear direction or identity. In addition, China is now the world's largest importer of commodities, rather than the United States. It's challenging to maintain a system of all oil and most commodities being priced worldwide in U.S. dollars if there is a bigger global trade partner and importer of oil and commodities than the United States. The United States still has an unrivaled military reach, but its other justifications for the existing system are diminishing. Shrinking U.S. Share of Global GDP Despite all of this, China can't replace the United States as the holder of the sole global reserve currency. Not even close. No single country can. And here's why. In the aftermath of World War II, the United States represented over 40% of global GDP. By the time the Bretton Woods system ended and the petrodollar system began, the United States still represented 35% of global GDP. It has since fallen to only 20 to 25% of global GDP. And that's nominal GDP, i.e. priced in dollars. So it is tied in part to dollar strength. If the dollar does have another bear cycle, this would be down to maybe 20%. And based on purchasing power parity, which more closely tracks commodity consumption, the U.S. represents only 15% of global GDP. That's still pretty good for a country with 4% of the world's population, but really not enough to maintain the petrodollar system indefinitely. The global energy market, and more broadly international trade, is now too big to be priced primarily in the currency of a country that represents this small of a share of global GDP. Imagine if the entire world tried to price energy exclusively in Swiss francs. There simply wouldn't be enough of them out there for that to work. The petrodollar situation is not that extreme, of course, since the United States is far larger than Switzerland. But the point is, as the U.S. economy represents a smaller and smaller share of global GDP over time, it becomes increasingly unable to supply enough dollars for the world to price all energy in dollars. There's no country or currency group big enough to do that alone anymore. Not the United States, not China, not the European Union, and not Japan. The United States was uniquely able to do it for decades in the aftermath of World War II as most other nations were decimated and the U.S. share of global GDP became unusually high. However, as the world grows and becomes more multipolar over time, with no individual country representing a domineering share of global GDP like the U.S. used to, the global monetary system itself also requires more decentralization to work properly. And we're starting to see that happen. Multi-currency international trade As Bloomberg reported this year, exports from Russia to China 
have quickly de-dollarized over the past few years into a more diverse basket of currencies. Six years ago, Russian exports to China were over 98% dollar-based. As of early 2020, it's only 33% dollar-based, 50% euro-based, and 17% with their own currencies. And importantly, Russia's exports are significantly energy-based and commodity-based, which gets to the heart of the petrodollar system. Similarly, the article shows that Russian exports to Europe have become increasingly euro-based as well. Six years ago, Russian exports to Europe were 69% dollar-based and 18% euro-based. Now, they're 44% dollar-based and 43% euro-based. Plus, Bloomberg reported back in 2019 that Russia has been achieving similar results with India as well, with a remarkable drop from nearly 100% of exports to only 20% of exports being priced in dollars. This isn't the first time this sort of thing was attempted. Back in 2000, Saddam Hussein began selling oil priced in the newly created euro. A couple years later, the United States invaded Iraq and removed Hussein from power based on allegations of Iraq possessing weapons of mass destruction. These allegations turned out to be untrue, and Iraq quickly went back to selling oil in dollars. It is disputed to what extent Iraq's decision to sell oil in euros factored into U.S. decisions to enter the war. But what can be said is this. There is no shortage of malevolent dictators in the world. But that is the one that we spent 4,500 American soldier lives and $2 trillion in U.S. funds to take out. And that's without getting into the destruction on the Iraqi side. There is a detailed speech by then-Representative Ron Paul to Congress in 2006 about Iraq and the euro and broader themes about the petrodollar system as it relates to U.S. foreign policy, including policy towards Venezuela and Iran. Although he's a controversial political figure, regardless of what side of the political spectrum someone is on, I think that is a speech worth being familiar with on the historical record. However, when major powers like China, Russia, and India begin pricing things outside of the dollar-based system and using their currencies for trade, including for energy in some cases, the U.S. can't realistically intervene militarily and instead can only intervene with sanctions or trade disputes and other forms of geopolitical pressure. The latest hotspot has been multiple rounds and threats of U.S. sanctions for companies involved in the Nord Stream 2 pipeline from Russia to Germany, which if completed would strengthen Russia's gas supply system to Europe. Both the United States executive branch and legislative branch have been quite fixated on that project. A number of U.S. senators, for example, sent a letter warning of, quote, crushing and potentially fatal legal and economic sanctions against Germany's port operator involved with the project. German officials have pushed back, saying such sanctions threaten European sovereignty. Another hotspot has been the U.S. sanctions against Iran. Europe, India, and China all have trade relations with Iran and want to trade with them, and all of them are major energy importers, whereas Iran is an energy producer. Europe created Instex in 2019, a special-purpose vehicle to avoid U.S. sanctions on Iran. The vehicle facilitates trade outside of the SWIFT system, 
and outside of the dollar system more broadly. It has been successfully tested, but barely used. Similarly, India has long had constructive trade with Iran despite religious and cultural differences that often cause issues between India and its neighbor Pakistan and territorial disputes in Kashmir. But the Iran-India trade partnership has been constrained in 2020 due to a combination of U.S. sanctions and COVID-19. China has a number of strategic energy partnerships and trade agreements with Iran as well. But U.S. sanctions, along with COVID-19, also threw a curveball into their trade situation. China is subverting the petrodollar system. For the past seven years, China has been using the petrodollar system against the United States. The petrodollar system encourages mercantilist nations to run trade surpluses with the United States and recycle those dollars into buying U.S. treasuries. But after a while of doing this, China started taking their dollar surpluses and investing in other foreign assets instead. This topic has been reported on by petrodollar experts like Luke Groman and others for quite some time, but is not widely followed in the broad sense. Early on in the days of the petrodollar system, Europe and the Middle East were the biggest trading partners and ran trade surpluses with the United States. They accumulated a lot of dollars and reinvested those dollars into treasuries. Then Japan's quick rise led them to become the next big trading partner and center of global growth. They took the baton and ran big trade surpluses with the United States and again reinvested those dollars into treasuries. Then with the stagnation of Japan and the rise of China, China became the biggest trading partner with the United States, ran big trade surpluses with the United States, and reinvested those dollars into treasuries. All was well, except for the Americans who wanted to make things, or any folks, American or foreign, who were on the wrong side of military adventurism. The wheels of the petrodollar system kept functioning. But then, China broke the wheels. Back in 2013, China declared that it was no longer in their interest to keep accumulating treasuries. They kept running huge trade surpluses with the United States and had dollars still coming in, but they would no longer recycle those to fund U.S. fiscal deficits by buying treasuries. As per the linked Bloomberg article, quote, It is no longer in China's favor to accumulate foreign exchange reserves, Yai Gang, a deputy governor at the central bank, said in a speech organized by China Economist 50 Forum, at Tsinghua University yesterday. The monetary authority will, quote, basically end normal intervention in the currency market and broaden the yuan's daily trading range. Governor Zhao Jiaxuan wrote in an article in a guidebook explaining reforms outlined last week following a Communist Party meeting. Neither Yi nor Zhao gave a time frame for any changes. End quote. Indeed, China now holds fewer U.S. treasuries than they did seven years ago, even though they kept increasing their trade surplus with the United States through 2018. Instead, they launched the Belt and Road Initiative in 2013. China began aggressively lending dollar-based loans for infrastructure projects to developing nations in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and Eastern Europe, and providing their infrastructure building capabilities as well, because infrastructure has long been one of China's technical specialties. 
Many of those foreign loans, if defaulted on, mean that China gains ownership of the infrastructure. So whether the loans are successful or not, China gains access to commodity deals, trading partners, and hard assets around the world. Here is a map of global Chinese funding. Highly recommend checking this one out just because it's, it's really interesting to see where um, they have put their capital and essentially where they hold uh, heavy financial stakes regarding future development in countries all over the world. So, the U.S. runs big trade deficits with the rest of the world, and especially China, but now, rather than funneling those dollar trade surpluses back into financing U.S. fiscal deficits, China uses its incoming dollars to finance hard asset projects around the world and increase their global reach. At this stage, instead of just blue-collar labor in America being hurt by the system, the geopolitical ambitions of United States hegemony are also subverted. As far as Americans were concerned, for 40-plus years the petrodollar system used to work for the top half of the income spectrum, but not really the bottom half. And now it neither particularly works for the top half nor the bottom half. It's now a system without a purpose. There's an old quote from Charlie Munger that goes, Show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. As clever as the design of the petrodollar system was in the 1970s, China's subversion of the fraying petrodollar system was just as clever. The flaws of the system basically ask for it to happen eventually, and it's mathematics and Trifon's dilemma coming home to roost. From a geopolitical standpoint, we can see why China would want to do it. The Western powers severely damaged China in the 1800s Opium Wars, which contributed in part to the next 150 years of Chinese destabilization and stagnation. And now, having regained a degree of organization and power, China isn't playing nice with the global system as structured by those Western powers. Chinese officials have said on numerous occasions that their reliance on the dollar system is a security risk for them. Having surpassed the United States as the world's largest trading partner and world's biggest importer of commodities, China increasingly has an interest in being able to acquire commodities and perform global trade without dollars, which as we see with trading partners like Russia or with China's yuan-based oil futures contract, they're increasingly able to do with small steps at a time. At the same time, the United States faces increasing populism in its own country, as the persistent trade deficit becomes an increasingly political issue to fix. Plus, U.S. officials have routinely pointed out the security risk of having so much critical supplies made outside of the country, which became even more apparent during COVID-19. The trap solution is for U.S. policymakers to try to narrow the trade deficit by getting other countries to buy more American goods, but that's like putting a band-aid on a gunshot wound. The deeper problem is that the global monetary system as currently structured simply doesn't work well with that goal. It's inherently designed at its core to run with persistent trade deficits to get dollars out into the world and enforce dollar-only global energy pricing. Back on March 2, 2018, President Trump tweeted that Trade wars are good and easy to win. Since then, the U.S. trade deficit increased rather than decreased. 
Trade wars are very difficult for the U.S. to win within the petrodollar system as currently structured. The U.S. can close its trade deficit over time, but not without changing the global monetary system from its current structure. So on one hand, U.S. policymakers do what they can with military action or sanctions against those that would sell energy in a currency other than dollars and try to maintain the dollar lock on global energy markets wherever possible. On the other hand, the U.S. wants to fix its deepening trade deficit, even though that trade deficit is what gets dollars out into the world for use by countries to sell oil in dollars or acquire dollars to buy oil. It's an incoherent strategy, and it runs deep in U.S. political culture rather than tied to any one politician. Meanwhile, the entropy of trade deficits chips away at the existing system from within. China uses the system against the system's owner. Populism rises in the U.S. and elsewhere. And countries throughout Eurasia gradually build non-dollar payment channels. Eating our own cooking As of this year, the U.S. Federal Reserve, the Blue Line, now owns more treasuries than all foreign central banks combined, the orange line. That's not exactly how the, quote, global reserve currency is supposed to work. It's like a restaurant chef eating her own cooking more than her customers do. This is what other non-global reserve countries look like. Within one year, the Fed went from owning half as much treasuries as foreign central banks combined to more than them combined. As previously described, countries can only keep buying treasuries if global dollar liquidity conditions are good. A strong dollar halts foreign accumulation of treasuries. In addition, any impact to trade, such as a pandemic and associated economic shutdowns that crater oil demand and import-export volumes, threatens that whole system. And China isn't recycling dollars into treasuries for aforementioned strategic reasons. As it relates to the treasury market, in addition to not buying much treasuries over the past five years of this strong dollar environment, some countries began rapidly selling treasuries in March and April of this year at the height of the global shutdown and liquidity crisis. Leading into the pandemic, long-duration treasuries rallied as investors flocked into them and drove their yields down. But at the worst point in the liquidity crisis as the dollar index spiked to 103, even treasuries sharply sold off. The Fed described the problem in their emergency March meeting and their subsequent April meeting. Here is March, quote, In the treasury market, following several consecutive days of deteriorating conditions, market participants reported an acute decline in market liquidity. A number of primary dealers found it especially difficult to make markets in off-the-run treasury securities and reported that this segment of the market had ceased to function effectively. This disruption in intermediation was attributed in part to sales of off-the-run treasury securities and flight-to-quality flows into the most liquid, on-the-run treasury securities. End quote. And here are two snippets from April. Quote, Treasury markets experienced extreme volatility in mid-March, and market liquidity became substantially impaired as investors sold large volumes of medium and long-term trade securities. Following a period of extraordinarily rapid purchases of Treasury securities and agency MBS 
by the Federal Reserve, Treasury market liquidity gradually improved through the remainder of the intermediate period, and Treasury yields became less volatile. Although market depth remained exceptionally low and bid-ask spreads for off-the-run securities and long-term on-the-run securities remained elevated, bid-ask spreads for short-term on-the-run securities fell close to levels seen earlier in the year. Several participants remarked that a program of ongoing Treasury security purchases could be used in the future to keep longer-term yields low. A few participants also noted that the balance sheet could be used to reinforce the committee's forward guidance regarding the path of the federal funds rate through Federal Reserve purchases of Treasury securities on a scale necessary to keep Treasury yields at short to medium-term maturities capped at specified levels for a period of time. End quote. And here's what they did. The red line is 10-year Treasury yields. The blue line is the weekly rate of Treasury security purchases by the Fed. This chart just shows that when uh, rates began to spike and there was a huge sell-off in Treasuries, um, the massive spike uh, in the Fed uh, buying up all of those Treasuries to keep the, the rates down to near zero. More importantly than the yield spike itself in March was the fact that the Treasury market became illiquid with wide bid and ask spreads. It wasn't functioning properly, let alone yields going up. Since then, the Fed has gradually tapered their Treasury security buying program from those extreme $75 billion per day highs. Although, they are still buying at a rate that rivals previous instances of QE, at $80 billion worth of treasuries per month. The Fed remains the biggest buyer of U.S. fiscal deficits, in other words. The dollar weakened from its March highs, but is still at a relatively strong part in the historic cycle. And as such, the foreign sector isn't recycling many of their dollars into accumulating treasuries. That's what happens when there is $13 trillion in dollar-denominated debt in the world and plenty of dollar-funding needs, while dollars simply aren't being supplied in sufficient quantity to the world. Foreigners begin selling some of their $42 trillion in dollar-denominated assets to get dollars, and that crashes U.S. markets along with everything else, which forces the Fed to step in, print dollars to buy what they sell, and open dollar swap lines to foreign central banks until sufficient global dollar liquidity is restored. Trifon's Dilemma Unfolds Ultimately, this gets back to the question of whether the United States should even want to try to maintain the petrodollar system if it could. As previously shown, the U.S. trade balance is a mess. The U.S. net international investment position has absolutely collapsed with the U.S. having gone from being the world's largest creditor nation to the world's largest debtor nation. So this chart is really kind of eye-opening. This is the U.S. net international investment position uh, as a percent of GDP. Essentially, this is measuring uh, either how much uh, foreign assets the United States owns or uh, how much foreign nations own United States assets. And it shows that back in the 1930s, we were 20 to 30% uh, net owning 
assets outside of the United States, and now we are almost at negative 60% of owing our assets to foreign nations. The net international investment position of a country measures how much foreign assets they own minus how much of their assets that foreigners own, and the chart above shows it as a percentage of GDP. As of this year, the United States owns $29 trillion in foreign assets, while foreigners own $42 trillion in U.S. assets, including U.S. government bonds, corporate bonds, stocks, and real estate. This is a result of accumulated U.S. trade deficits, and on the other side, accumulated trade surpluses by the foreign sector and now puts the U.S. at one of the weakest positions in the world in terms of this metric. This was as of 2019, and it has gotten worse since then. Wealth concentration in the U.S. is now higher than just about any other developed nation. The top 1% have as much as the bottom 90%, which is a lot more concentration than 30 to 40 years ago. The United States is ranked 27 in the world for social mobility, which puts it at the bottom range of developed countries. For Americans, their family of birth dictates their lifetime economic potential more so than other advanced peers. With a few exceptions, we have to go down into emerging or developing markets to find lower social mobility scores than the United States has. Median American wages decoupled from productivity since the 1970s and that gap was arbitraged by those at the top, thanks to offshoring and automation. Now, the median American male has trouble affording the expenses for a family that he could easily afford decades ago. Either an above-median income is required, or two incomes are required, because the median income just doesn't support a family like it used to. I just want to pause right here really fast because... Almost every one of these statements has been met with a chart to demonstrate the, a, the um, uh, U.S. net investment imbalance and how it relates to other countries, the percentage wealth share of the top 1%, uh, how it has um, closed that gap massively and then crossed between the 1% and the uh, bottom 90% um, since uh, just over the last 20 years. Um, and then the, uh, what the WTF happened in 1971 chart, I'm sure if anybody has seen that, um, the, uh, uh, chart from the 1960s to 2020 showing how the median income and the productivity were perfectly in line and then boom, the petrodollar system starts and the median income, uh, compensation almost just barely increases while productivity soars. Then the last one is uh, about the costs of housing, healthcare, vehicles, uh, and college um, as they have increased and the median male income and how just recently around 2014 and 2015, the expenses have outpaced the median income so that a year of wages will no longer cover a year of family expenses. All right, let's jump back in. Meanwhile, there has been a rapid increase in CEO pay over the past four decades. CEOs used to make 20 times as much as the average worker in 1965, and that ratio moved up to 59 times by 89, 122 times by 1995, 
and in recent decades has been well over 200 times as much as the average worker. According to the 2019 Credit Suisse Wealth Report, although the United States is wealthy per capita, because that wealth is so concentrated, the median American net worth, which represents the 50th percentile, the middle person on the spectrum, is actually lower than the median net worth of most other advanced countries. We squeezed our middle and working classes harder than most other countries. It's no wonder that populism is on the rise, both from the right and the left. Folks sense something isn't working, but differ on what they think the causes and solutions are. Basically, the petrodollar system and the associated fiscal policy is fraying under its own inherent flaws over decades, which again gets back to the Trifon dilemma that to maintain a global reserve currency, you need to export an increasing amount of your valuable assets, like gold reserves or your industrial base. That cost inherently makes these sorts of systems long-lasting, but not permanent. At first, having the global reserve currency is an exorbitant privilege, because the benefits of hegemonic power outweigh the costs of maintaining the system. Over time, however, the upside benefits stay relatively static, while the costs keep compounding over time, until the costs outweigh the benefits. And from there, the value of the system depends on who you ask. Folks who are often on the higher end of the income spectrum, who worked in finance, government, healthcare, or technology, benefited from this system, since they obtained many of the benefits of globalization and none of the drawbacks. Folks who are often on the lower end of the income spectrum, specifically those that make physical things, are the ones that benefited least and gave up the most, since their jobs were outsourced and automated at a faster rate than other developed countries. But now, with China also undermining the structure of the system, even the geopolitical and hegemonic benefits for the political class are subverted as well. As the system frays, it's easy to point to external nations as the cause of this fraying. When they begin pricing things outside of the dollar-based system, or employing mercantilist currency policies, or building pipelines, or deciding to do something with their dollar surpluses other than reinvest them in U.S. treasuries, it can seem as though they are undermining an otherwise sound system. In reality, those external actions are a symptom of the more underlying flaws in the system. The fact that the United States is no longer big enough as a share of global GDP to supply enough dollars to fund global energy markets and global trade. The fact that the United States has to run persistent trade deficits to get dollars out into the system and the fact that an all-fiat global currency system incentivizes mercantilist currency manipulation by many countries to generate trade surpluses against the U.S. wherever possible. All right, let's take a quick break right here. I have got to get something more to drink, but I think I am going to go the long haul, and we're going to finish this today. We are jumping into Section 4, the Intermediate Term Outlook. So every single exchange in Bitcoin uses the same model, right? They use transaction fees. Level.co believes that the future of Bitcoin is free. They are creating a game-changing service. So they are bringing Bitcoin banking to the U.S. 
with direct deposits, checks, uh, wire transfers, a debit card, and zero conversion fees. Their profit model is simply to charge a flat rate of $3 for withdrawals, and uh, which actually includes the network fee, uh, and then $5 for same-day bank transfers and wires. And then, of course, they offer additional benefits like a private banker, a world debit card, and autopilot trading for anyone who spends just $9 a month. You have got to check these guys out if you are in a state that they are available in. They're in 28 so far. And then please come tell me about it so that you can make me jealous. Um, Level.co, LVL.co, you got to check it out. Section 4 the intermediate-term outlook. Whether there are major changes to the system or not, I think probabilities lead to a weakening dollar in the years ahead. In other words, another down leg on this dollar chart, even if the overall system structure doesn't change much. The dollar versus other currencies. Some people ask why would the U.S. dollar weaken more than other major currencies if all of them are printing a lot of money? What causes these big bear markets in the dollar? In other words, just because the U.S. Federal Reserve turns dovish, doing plenty of QE and keeping interest rates at zero, why would the dollar be weak versus the euro, the yen, pound, or other countries that are acting similarly dovish? It's easy to argue that it should weaken against hard assets, and indeed that's probably the easier long-term trade, but why should it weaken versus other fiat? The first answer to that question has to do with magnitude. All major countries are acting similarly, but not at the same magnitude. U.S. fiscal deficits as a percentage of GDP were larger than most advanced peers before the pandemic hit and are larger than most advanced peers during this pandemic as well. Here's a chart I had in my November 2020 newsletter about the U.S. federal deficit, showing that it's the first time in modern history where the United States has a rising deficit, both in absolute terms and as a percentage of GDP, during the later years of an economic expansion. In addition, while Japan, Europe, and China have positive trade balances and current accounts, the U.S. has the aforementioned Trifon Dilemma issue of structural trade and current account deficits. Here's a chart I put together in 2019 using data from late 2018 showing that pre-pandemic, the U.S. had the biggest twin deficit among major developed nations. So, when U.S. monetary policy also turns dovish as it did in 2019, the dollar has plenty of room to decline. The second answer to that question has to do with valuation. Suppose a value stock had a price-to-earnings ratio of 10x and you expect 5% earnings growth this year. And suppose a growth stock had a price-to-earnings ratio of 30x and you expect 15% earnings growth this year. What happens if, despite expectations, the value stock only grows earnings by 4% and the growth stock only grows earnings by 7%. Due to high valuation and the bigger relative gap versus what was priced in, the overvalued growth stock has a lot further to fall in that scenario than the value stock. The dollar is specifically propped up in a bullish cycle 
due to tons of offshore dollar-denominated debts. Structural scarcity for dollars outside of the United States to service those debts and a decade of capital inflows to the United States. Now, in an environment where all countries, including the U.S., create massive liquidity and create more currency units, the currency that was specifically overvalued due to scarcity relative to required demand, the dollar, is the one that has the farthest to fall. Because that specific scarcity and liquidity problem that was propping it up gets addressed. Trade deficits imply an overvalued currency, too much importing power, and uncompetitive export pricing. And trade surpluses imply an undervalued currency, too little importing, and overly competitive export pricing. Mercantilist countries can manipulate their currency to keep those trade surpluses open for a while, and the global reserve currency can go decades with trade deficits. But when monetary policy stops pushing against these inherent trade forces, exchange rates have a tendency to push back towards the direction of balanced trade. When the U.S. is in a strong dollar cycle, has a big trade deficit, and then cuts interest rates and shifts from quantitative tightening to quantitative easing, the dollar has plenty of room to weaken compared to currencies of developed nations that already have trade surpluses, i.e. undervalued currencies even though the dollar is the global reserve currency. We saw that happen this year, so the question is whether it will continue. Plus, U.S. stocks are more expensive than many other nations, even when adjusting for sector differences. So if U.S. equity indices can't continue their period of outperformance, capital could start flowing elsewhere, which also weakens the currency. Usually, due to equity valuations and shifts in policy, whatever equity region outperformed in one decade tends not to be the same one that outperforms in the next decade. Risks to this view Within a multi-year outlook, there will likely be occasional counter-rallies where the dollar outperforms other currencies or even outperforms gold despite being within a declining trend. So maintaining a clarity of time horizon is important. Similar to how the pandemic was a six-month curveball towards my view of a weaker dollar in the first half of 2020. There are other tail risks that could temporarily derail the outlook as well. An economic slowdown this winter, before the vaccines achieved widespread penetration and changed consumer behavior? A sovereign debt or banking crisis in Europe, centered on southern European countries? A famine in China? A currency crisis in a big emerging market like Brazil? some sort of unexpected military engagement between major powers. Any of those outcomes could cause a temporary spike in the dollar, similar to the spike that occurred in March. An outlook can be firm for structural reasons, but still needs to adapt as data change. That's why I write newsletters and research reports regularly. Things change. In terms of inevitability, the eventual issue with Southern European sovereign debt is one that should cause investors a lot of concern in the long run. The euro has structural issues of its own, with a monetary union but no fiscal union, although that's a subject for another article. The euro has a lot of problems, but being overvalued isn't one of them. In this strong dollar period, Europe has run persistent trade and current account surpluses. 
A weaker dollar versus the euro, if it happens, could indeed reduce Europe's trade surplus with the United States. But the corresponding emerging market boom that would likely come along with a weaker dollar would open up other trading avenues for them as well. Part 5. The Long-Term Outlook The further we look out, the more we can think about a structural shift away from the petrodollar system itself, rather than just another dollar cycle within the system. The Slow Restructuring Option A structural change could happen gradually, as it already is happening. If an increasing share of global trade, particularly within Eurasia and particularly regarding energy and commodities, keeps shifting towards euros, yuan, and rubles, and away from the dollar, then the system can become more decentralized over time. In fact, we could argue that the petrodollar system peaked in 2000, has been in a steady state for the past 20 years since then, and is now potentially facing decline. This chart shows currencies held as a share of total central bank reserves. Another way of looking at it is that it peaked in 2013 when foreigners owned a record high percentage of U.S. debt and China declared that it was no longer in their interest to keep accumulating treasuries. Since then, the percent of treasuries owned by the foreign sector has diminished. As a base case, I expect this gradual outcome to continue happening whether the United States participates or not, as various major powers continue to increase their usage of non-dollar payment systems over time, and an increasing percentage of U.S. federal debt becomes owned by the Federal Reserve and the U.S. commercial banking system. The new RCEP trade agreement between many Asia-Pacific nations, which creates the largest trade block in history, could further accelerate that trend and new technologies, including blockchains and domestic government-issued digital currencies, open up novel opportunities for new payment networks as well. The Fast Restructuring Option On the other hand, a structural change could happen with a shock and stepwise change, like the end of the Bretton Woods system. This can happen in a few ways, but becomes more probable if the United States decides to actively promote a change rather than defend the status quo. On the legislative side, the United States could reverse some policies that I described in my piece, quote, the big tax shift, which would make onshore labor more competitive. This would include things like cutting payroll taxes or performing similar measures and rearranging other spending and taxing priorities to emphasize some degree of industrial onshoring. On the Treasury and Fed side, the easiest way would be through foreign exchange reserves. Countries manage their currencies primarily with their foreign exchange reserves, which consist of foreign currencies in the form of sovereign bonds and gold. In some cases, they also own foreign equities and other assets. These foreign exchange reserves held by central banks around the world have multiple purposes. First, they act as savings, a way for a central bank to be able to pay external obligations if necessary. Next, if a country's own currency weakens, which makes imports more expensive and in crisis situations can lead to major devaluation, their central bank can sell some of its foreign exchange reserves and buy its own currency. This reduces supply and increases demand for their own currency, strengthening it. The bigger the reserves compared to the country's monetary supply, or GDP, 
the more ammunition they have to defend the value of their currency if needed. And next, if a country's own currency strengthens too much, which can be bad for export-driven countries, their central bank can print units of their own currency and use it to buy foreign exchange reserves. This weakens their currency and increases their reserves for later. Because the dollar is the axiom of the current global monetary system, treasuries are the biggest component of most countries' foreign exchange reserves. The U.S. itself doesn't have much foreign exchange reserves. Emerging markets often have the biggest reserves since they need them the most, but a handful of developed nations also have huge reserves as well. And just about every country has more reserves as a percentage of GDP than the United States. This chart shows foreign exchange reserves as a percentage of GDP for dozens of countries, as of spring of this year when I assembled it. In terms of comparative magnitude for most countries, it hasn't changed much since then. And just to cover it, uh, the United States is lowest on this entire list, with only 2% of the GDP in reserves. For the United States, this number includes our official gold reserves at this year's gold prices, and gold indeed represents the vast majority of U.S. reserves. For Eurozone countries, the European Central Bank also has another layer of reserves as well in addition to the individual country reserves on the chart, so the numbers on the chart for Eurozone countries mildly understate the total direct and indirect reserves relative to GDP for the Euro. The U.S. could devalue the dollar at any time it wants by printing dollars to buy foreign assets or gold and build more sizable foreign exchange reserves in the process, which would be in line with other peer nations. With a nominal GDP of over $20 trillion, for each 5% of foreign exchange reserves as a percent of GDP that they want to have, the United States would need to print and spend over $1 trillion. So adding a 10% of GDP reserve would cost over $2 trillion, especially as the dollar devalues in the process of building that reserve. That's one of the potential endgame scenarios for how the United States could choose to abruptly end this system as currently structured. It could decide to cease being the axiom of the global monetary system and simply move to being the biggest individual player in the system, by acquiring foreign exchange reserves, devaluing its currency in the process, adopt various fiscal changes to promote onshoring, and begin promoting rather than fighting the trade of energy and other commodities being sold in a handful of major currencies around the world rather than just the dollar. In doing so, it would sacrifice some of its international hegemony in favor of more industrial competitiveness and higher domestic economy vibrancy. The dollar would still be a reserve currency, and still the largest individual one, but wouldn't be the reserve currency like it is now. Risks to this view Big macro shifts have a tendency to take longer to play out than logic would suggest. These sorts of things don't change easily, so predicting a sharp change to the global monetary system just around the corner is always going to be improbable even if one day, one of those improbable things happens. I'm focusing on monitoring the slow option, the continued progress or setbacks of non-dollar exports and imports between major powers, 
particularly regarding energy and other commodities. I prefer win-win bets for long-time horizons. Scarce assets, particularly industrial commodities, are historically cheap. Plenty of high-quality equities inside and outside of the United States are reasonably priced. Alternatives like Bitcoin also offer asymmetric outcomes, even with small allocations. At this stage in the long-term debt cycle, currency devaluation of some kind or another is likely in the 2020s decade, both for the dollar and other currencies, so having exposure to scarce assets could do well, regardless of what the global monetary system looks like at any given time, based on the decisions of policymakers. Section 6. What the Next System Looks Like what the next system will look like is an open question. I've seen multiple proposals. Whatever form it takes, it'll be decentralized in the sense that it won't be completely tied to any one country's currency, since no country is big enough for that anymore. It'll be based around neutral reserve assets and or a more regional reserve model based on a handful of key country currencies with an expanded variety of payment channels. Decentralized Energy Pricing at the heart of all of these systems would be the fact that the dollar would no longer be the world's only currency for energy pricing. The euro, yuan, and perhaps a few others, or a neutral reserve currency, could be used in trade agreements to buy oil, gas, and various commodities, which unlocks the prospect for more global trade and reserve holdings in those currencies. Even without a major structural change or the formal adoption of a new system, this is already gradually emerging throughout Eurasia, as shown earlier in this article as other large currencies are increasingly used between trading partners, including for energy. And as I previously described, the United States, if it felt the current system was no longer in its best interest, could accelerate this shift at any time by building foreign exchange reserves and or supporting other non-dollar payment systems for energy and commodities rather than opposing them. In this sense, the world moves from a global reserve currency to a handful of regional reserve currencies. It doesn't require new technology or new neutral currency units to do this, but it does require the continued development and usage of non-dollar payment systems. In addition, central banks can hold more gold as a reserve asset, which they already have been doing over the past five years in this scenario, since it's a neutral currency. Alongside this trend, countries are increasingly launching or researching digital versions of their own fiat currencies, called Central Bank Digital Currencies, or CBDCs. In addition to this base outlook, there are some additional layers that could be added on top, described in the following sections. Digital Global Bancor A number of policymakers have resurrected the idea of the Bancor, as a neutral reserve currency for international trade, which already exists in diminished fashion as the IMF SDR. Mark Carney, who was governor of the Bank of England at the time, made headlines in 2019 when he said at the annual Jackson Hole Symposium in the United States, right in front of the U.S. Federal Reserve officials, that the dollar is too dominant and that a new digital currency could be used for international trade to fix some of the problems in the existing system. Coming from the head of the central bank of one of the United States' closest allies, this was interesting. Quote, 
The dollar's influence on global financial conditions should similarly decline if a financial architecture developed around the new digital currency and it displaced the dollar's dominance in credit markets. By reducing the influence of the U.S. on the global financial cycle, this would help reduce the volatility of capital flows to emerging market economies. End quote. Carney also mentioned the Libra in more positive tones than many other policymakers have. Facebook made headlines earlier that year with a proposal of the Libra, a digital currency that would consist of a basket of multiple currencies. The idea of the Libra is basically a stablecoin bancor issued by a massive private corporation rather than a supra-government entity. It would ironically be a form of centralized decentralization. In other words, it is a centralized agreement to create and use a unit of trade that is neutral and not tied to any one country's currency. The problem with this proposal for a global digital bancor, like a supra-government version of the Libra rather than a privately issued one, is that it requires a lot of international cooperation and agreement to use it, something like a new Bretton Woods agreement. So while certainly possible, something like that appears unlikely in such a fractured geopolitical system. Digital Regional Bancors a less ambitious form of a global digital bancor idea is one or a set of regional bancors. In other words, suppose that the 15 nations of Asia-Pacific's new RCEP trade agreement agree to create and use some neutral digital currency between themselves. They're already in a trading block, so organizing something like that is potentially more realistic than organizing something on a global scale. And then maybe a few other nations, like Russia, would be willing to accept that trading bloc's bancor as payment for oil and gas and other commodities like they do for the euro. Russia's biggest commercial bank, Zuberbank, has already experimented with blockchain technology and is an avid investor in tech companies. Blockchain technology creates new options for decentralized international payments linked to a specific fiat currency or basket of fiat currencies weighted by a specific metric. This is the application of software to the relatively outdated global banking system, potentially a much more liquid medium for trade. This year, the largest commodity companies in the world, BHP, Vail, and Rio Tinto, all completed blockchain sales of iron ore to Chinese firms. Singapore banks were involved with the transactions as well. Singapore also hosted the counterparties that tested blockchain transactions with Zuberbank of Russia. Technology can lead to all sorts of new payment channels. Referring to the recent exponential usage of existing private stablecoins on crypto exchanges, Nick Carter, the first crypto analyst at Fidelity, co-founder of blockchain analytics firm Coinmetrics, and who works at a blockchain venture fund, had this to say about stablecoin efficiency. Quote, Lastly, capital existing in tokenized fiat format tends to enter the crypto industry, but not leave. This is because crypto rails are fundamentally more convenient, more globalized, and less encumbered than traditional payment and settlement rails. End quote. Adding governments to the mix to create regional multi-currency stablecoins, i.e. regional bankors for the purpose of international trade, could potentially make use of similar technology on a larger scale. Gold Standard 
Some gold investors believe that countries will return to a similar system as existed pre-1944, with central banks storing large amounts of gold and backing their currencies with it. While no country would willingly go on a gold standard at this point, since it limits their ability to run big deficits and grow the money supply, and goes against the current incentive of having weak currencies to be competitive in global trade and to generate trade surpluses, some countries could turn to it in a time of crisis to stabilize a currency during a period of inflation, if something breaks down. Last year, the Dutch central bank stated that gold could be used to collateralize a collapsed financial system and start over. Quote, Shares, bonds, and other securities. There is a risk to everything. If things go wrong, prices can fall. But crisis or not, a bar of gold always holds value. Central banks such as DNB have therefore traditionally held a lot of gold in stock. After all, gold is the ultimate nest egg the trust anchor for the financial system. If the entire system collapses, the gold supply will provide collateral to start over. Gold gives confidence in the strength of the central bank's balance sheet. That gives a safe feeling. End quote. In a more benign way, a few years ago, India's central bank began issuing sovereign gold bonds on behalf of the government of India. These are government securities denominated in grams of gold. They pay lower interest rates than normal Indian sovereign bonds because they eliminate currency risk. The government's benefit is that they get to borrow at a lower yield. The investor's benefit is that they get a more conservative investment, tied to gold prices instead of India's currency, and can earn positive yield on gold exposure. Whether currencies are ever backed by gold in a broad sense again, Central banks can hold gold as a reserve asset within any sort of global monetary system, such as the above-mentioned decentralized energy pricing system, or alongside digital currency baskets. Bitcoin as a reserve asset Dismissed by many, there is a fervent group of proponents for the idea that Bitcoin's network effect is too strong to stop and that it will continue to expand exponentially until it eats the global financial system, i.e. hyper-Bitcoinization. As a decentralized and open-source project, adopted by many programmers and proponents around the world, many intelligent people have dedicated their careers to Bitcoin. It's hard to find a more voracious group of people than those in the Bitcoin community, and increasingly, over time, Wall Street money has poured in as well. So far, Bitcoin has defied most expectations, growing from zero into a $350 billion market cap digital asset in a little over a decade in an algorithmic price pattern that has rivaled the speed of even the most successful tech companies. Plus, there are countless businesses, such as exchanges, lenders, custodians, security solutions, and more that exist in the ecosystem around it. Additional technologies have wrapped Bitcoin in other blockchain layers for use as collateral in other digital asset protocols and decentralized finance applications as well, or to increase Bitcoin's scaling potential. To use a Game of Thrones analogy, as the leaders of the Seven Kingdoms feud among themselves in order to control the Iron Throne and subsequently rule all of Westeros, a small but exponentially growing threat of inhuman White Walkers quietly builds from beyond the wall, far outside of the luxurious castles 
seeking to supplant the established system and render their petty human squabbles over the throne moot. Back to the present. Bitcoin's adoption as a store of value has indeed spread worldwide in a niche sense. Consumers in many developing countries with currency weakness have used it as a store of value, and people in many developed countries have used it as a speculative growth asset. Lately, publicly traded companies on major exchanges have bought it. Square's Cash App lets users buy it. PayPal lets users buy it. And successful investors like Kathy Woods, Bill Miller, Paul Tudor Jones, and Stanley Druckenmiller are bullish on it. Fidelity began researching it in 2014, began mining it in 2015, and continues to build out their institutional-grade custody and trade execution solutions. There are also some emerging state-based uses for Bitcoin. In 2019, and increasingly in 2020, Iran has turned to Bitcoin as a potential tool for performing international trade despite its sanctioned isolation. Bitcoin is verifiable, provable, requires no trust or cooperation other than agreement between parties to use it, and works well for large, irreversible international transactions. Iran can subsidize Iranian Bitcoin miners with electricity resources, buy the Bitcoins they generate, and use those Bitcoins for international trade. Even if it never reaches the scale that some Bitcoin proponents believe it might, it could still be used as a part of a global monetary system, either as an additional neutral reserve asset, or by smaller isolated countries that make use of some of its features, with relatively little way for other nations to stop them from doing so as Iran seems to be doing. In terms of seeing where this goes, we just have to see whether it keeps adding zeros to its market capitalization, or if it eventually fails to gain market value during one of its halving cycles and hits a saturation point somewhere. Meanwhile, the Bitcoin community has different views of what the asset means. There is no unified vision within the community, but rather a set of different views for the long-term potential of the protocol. Some view it as the world's future money, while others view it as a digital gold, a store of value, or a bank in cyberspace that will exist along sovereign-issued currencies. For example, Michael Saylor, the billionaire founder and first CEO of a public company on a major exchange to invest corporate funds in Bitcoin as its treasury reserve asset, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars, has stated that he doesn't view Bitcoin as a currency, but rather as a digital savings bank. Quote, Bitcoin is not a currency, nor is it a payment network. It is a bank in cyberspace run by incorruptible software, offering a global, affordable, simple, and secure savings account to billions of people that don't have the option or desire to run their own hedge fund. End quote. Michael Saylor on November 12, 2020. Quote, this is why Bitcoin should be neither a currency nor a payment network. The principles of humility and harmony dictate that we should allow technology partners to provide for payments and defer to governments on matters of currency. BTC is purely engineered store of value. End quote. Michael Saylor on November 19, 2020. Section 7. Summary Thoughts. The world goes through periods of geopolitical order and disorder, and with that comes the construction and subsequent fraying of the global monetary system each time. More troublesome, 
the inherent flaw of having the global reserve currency in a theme that goes back to economist Robert Trifon from over half a century ago is that in order to maintain the global reserve currency, the country must supply the world with its currency via structural deficits in one form or another. At first, the hegemonic benefits of being the reserve currency nation outweigh the costs. But as the benefits stay relatively static and the costs compound over time, eventually the costs outweigh the benefits and the system becomes unsustainable. In addition, a system constructed around the U.S. dollar decades ago, when the U.S. was 35% of global GDP, doesn't work as well when the U.S. is only, say, 20% of global GDP. It's not about how big the U.S. military is to keep its hegemonic status. It's about whether the global monetary system as currently structured is still mathematically viable and whether it even still supports the interests of the United States. Put simply, there is a natural economic entropy to global reserve currency status because inherent flaws in the system continue to compound until they reach a breaking point. The challenge, of course, is identifying ahead of time where that breaking point is. A change in the global monetary system doesn't necessarily mean bad things for the United States. Indeed, the United Kingdom had an economic boom in the post-war years after it lost reserve currency status. But it does mean making a trade-off between international interests and domestic interests, and realigning trade as needed to obtain the desired balance. My base case is that going forward over the next several years, the global economy will more likely than not encounter the third dollar bear cycle of this current petrodollar system. If so, assets such as global equities, quality residential real estate, precious metals, industrial commodities, and alternatives such as Bitcoin are likely to do well. From there, the global monetary system is gradually becoming more decentralized, in the sense that alternate payment systems and alternate currency settlements among trading partners are growing in use. This is indeed a more structural shift towards a new system. It could happen slowly, as it already is, or it could accelerate if the U.S. itself also shifts out of the fraying system. And that does it. That concludes the fraying petrodollar system. This piece uh, is crazy dense. Probably going to require a couple of uh, listenings. Like I, I think I'm actually going to be going back and listening through it. Um, and uh, I think I'm going to post a full non-commentary, like start to finish version of this one, um, uh, maybe later this week. So for anybody who really likes to go through these um, like over and over again, uh, particularly this one, I think will be a prime candidate for it. Um, and I know I will be listening to it again um, just to kind of soak all of this stuff in. Um, but that will be available uh, probably in the next few days. All right, I need one more break. And I told myself that I wasn't going to do a guy's take um, because I'm low on time, but I'm, I just can't resist making a few comments, particularly about the Bitcoin section and uh, on the last part of this piece. So I'm going to, uh, let's take a quick break again so I can recharge a bit. I'm kind of five and some change hours in front of the mic right now. Uh, and then we will come right back.
the holidays are here, and if you are like me, you have barely started shopping. Uh, and you know, at this point, if you haven't gotten every single person in your family a BitBox, then really you have already failed the Bitcoiner purity test. But there is a last-minute way to save your ass. The guys at Shift Crypto just released a bundle package that includes a copy of the Little Bitcoin book at no extra charge. So it's like an all-in-one package for your easy-to-use, secure, Swiss-made, minimalist BitBox Bitcoin hardware wallet and an introduction into why Bitcoin is so important and the philosophy of freedom behind it. And take it from the guy who did the audiobook for that one, uh, that book is literally fire. Um, you can check it out at the shop by going to my link at guyswan.com. It's right there on the front page. Or you can just type in the full redirect at guyswan.com slash bitbox. And you can make someone very happy this holiday season with the Bitbox holiday package. Something that's funny about this piece is that, uh, just kind of in my perspective, is that, you, you know, you look at China... Um, working to subvert the petrodollar system. And from a general standpoint is that it makes perfect sense that, you know, they don't want to do business in dollars any more than they have to because it puts them subject to U.S. policy for, um, you know, basically their economic issues. Um, like that, that's the crazy thing about it is that anybody who is holding U.S. treasuries on their balance sheet and then needs to pay off uh, dollar-denominated debts it's entirely dependent on whether or not the U.S. Is, a is in a bull or a bear market or the dollar is in a bull or bear market, you know, subsequently, um, as to whether or not they can actually sustain their own economic boom. They literally just become solely de uh, uh, dependent on the economic policy and the economic status of the U.S. in being able to pay off their debts, being able to actually fund infrastructure and, you know, very critical problems. It, it basically kills the sovereignty of the nation in a, uh, in a pretty broad sense. So it's like, of, of course, like China or some other country would not want to be uh, subservient or basically dependent on this system because you never know what the hell the U.S. is going to do. What are the policymakers going to do? The U.S. doesn't know what the hell it's going to do, so how could anybody else know? And then, of course, all of them would do everything they could to vie for control so that they can have, uh, you know, like China's influence over the U.S. is really important. From a political position, it seems like, oh my God, that's horrible. But if their economic status, if their economic well-being is dependent on that, well, then they make, need to make sure like the, the political strategy is to make sure that you have a friendly regime in the other country. It's what we've been doing in the Middle East for fucking 50 years. So it's obvious almost that this is just how it must play out. Like when, when the system is this, when so many other countries are this dependent on it. But what's crazy that I didn't quite see is how much the U.S. is actually now being punished for this system. that. It's actually not even in the U.S.'s interest anymore. Um, like, and I always knew that you know manufacturing was going overseas because of the monetary dynamics. But it seemed to me like a huge benefit is that we had all this purchasing power of the dollar because we are able to just take our local currency and buy cheap goods from elsewhere. 
but it's actually not that great of a benefit because a that premium is weaker um, or uh, basically more volatile than any of the other currencies. But in addition, we're drowning in debt because we have to we have to have deficits like one way or the other. We need to have a fiscal deficit. We need to have a trade deficit. We need to be going more into debt, which traps us, which has killed the middle class and the working class since the 70s. But now even the top, even the 1% is not actually benefiting from this system because it's basically run its course and we've reached the end of finding yield in this. And basically the U.S. is just owed like like 60% of our GDP is owed as assets to foreign nations, that foreign investors own uh, a net investment of 60% of our entire GDP within the United States. Like, we've essentially sold all of our hard assets out from underneath the country and its people. And it's hard to even say that we were robbed by, like, China and the foreign, like, uh, investors and stuff that have bought up all those assets because it was the very dollar system that the U.S. implemented that did it. And another really crazy thing that she has posted in this, the the chart, which uh, I didn't actually describe because it would have been a, a headache and it would have taken like 10 minutes and probably still not come across. <laughs> so definitely recommend going to check out. Uh, like I said, there's so many graphs and like charts to go with this data to illustrate it. But the one that really hit um, it just got me thinking about how, uh, you know, the idea of the dollar reserve status and just thinking about it as the reserve, um, is that, you know, it would mean that foreign governments and foreign central banks are holding the dollar in reserve. Um, and, uh, you know, for a very long time, the, the U S holding the dollar in reserve was a minority, was a small amount of the total uh, in dollar reserves. And since 2020, since COVID, since this whole huge explosion of buying treasuries, of the Fed buying our own treasuries and equities and corporate bonds, like all sorts of stuff, just this flood of money that has come in 2020, is that it has simply soared past everybody else. And now the Federal Reserve, now our central bank is the largest holder compared to all other foreign banks. Uh, a foreign reserve banks combined is now the largest holder of U.S. debt. You know, that's not what a global reserve looks like. And the chart is just ridiculous looking. It's uh, like you just see like this gradual increase in the U.S.'s position. You know, it's a bunch of different colored lines. And then literally just in 2019 to 2020, it just this hockey stick just soars past all the other countries. Um, and suddenly, you know, we are the ones uh, holding all the bags, basically. Back to China real quick, though. She's got an um, interesting section that uh, rather than when China basically started to, um, I guess you could say, not do what the system uh, encouraged you to do, that uh, like showing how the shift would happen from the major trade surpluses happening in the Europe, uh, in the Eurozone, uh, then it shifted to Japan, then it shifted to China. And in every one of the instances and during these cycles, they would run a huge trade surplus and then take their surpluses and put it back into U.S. treasuries. Then Japan did it, then, then China did it. 
But then after some span of time trying to realize that this was not beneficial to them, that this puts them at risk to um, the U.S. economic stability as to whether or not they have growth. And then they turned around and started using it against us, that they would use it against the United States because they can actually use, turn around and use those dollars, loan out against that in order to get hard assets, in order to get infrastructure around the world. And I, I took a break there in the reading just to get you or just to call attention to it. So uh, you can go check it out uh, at the link, uh, obviously available in the show notes. Um, but just showing where China has invested in like infrastructure projects and invested in foreign capital and all sorts of stuff. And all through Africa in particular is just got tons and tons of different investments. And then a lot of emerging markets in the Middle East, uh, in India, and a lot of other stuff through like Southeast Asia, um, but just all over the world, um, essentially. And th what they're able to do is they're taking those dollars and rather than putting them into treasuries, which would help us, um, is that they're, it's kind of like a speculative attack on the dollar. They take that surplus and then convert it into hard assets in the developing world that stands to make significant growth because these are specifically emerging markets. And uh, then they get political and financial influence all around the world while offloading all of their dollars onto the least developed nations so that if things go bust, they're not left holding the bag. They're left holding the infrastructure, the political influence, and like, you know, basically their, their position, their political position around the world. So it's just really interesting to look at this and see, like, I never really thought about it from the context that really the dollar the, the petrodollar system, even though like I've always known it was horrible for the middle class and the poor, I never quite realized or thought about how it's really kind of an inevitability that at some point it's just basically bad for everyone because of the debts that are required to actually make it continue to function. Like it's just kind of a mathematical certainty that at some point the static benefits do not outweigh the compounding exponential costs. And uh, that, you know, basically we get to a position where we have to buy our own debt, where the Federal Reserve is, in fact, you know, she uh, takes uh, some snippets from the, the Fed minutes or whatever, um, uh, how the Fed is, uh, you know, purchases their treasury securities, as they say, on a scale to keep treasury yields at short to medium term capped at specified levels for a specified period of time. Uh, that just basically means they're going to print money. <laughs> you know, they, they buy treasuries because nobody else is buying them. Um, and we have landed ourselves in a position where nobody is buying U.S. debt because it has no yield. And it means that either we let the... So, like, in, in these situations when there's this liquidity crisis, and uh, as uh, was specifically said, that the whole market basically ceased to function... Um, is that we either, the only way to get around that is to either let rates be determined by the market, which is kind of like, you know, what we saw in the overnight loans during, uh, September of 2019 is it spiked from like one to 10% or higher, like in a matter of hours. And they came in and just had to flood the market with, uh, money to essentially prevent that from occurring. Um, but so we either let a market interest rate actually develop um, which would be a nightmare 
um, because, you know, the interest rates are going to soar. Everyone is going to default because we're all broke. Everybody's we've been in debt to fund our debt to to get out of debt. You know, like it's just it's so awful on top of awful that there's no possible way that we can actually survive. Like it would be a, it would be a huge economic collapse. Um, every time that the government has staved off a collapse back in 2008 and now in 2020 with the COVID um, huge market dump, understand that those are that those were the market screaming at us that we should not be doing what we are doing. That the correct market price is a vastly lower from the stocks and equities side of things. Uh, that housing is super bloated that none of these prices are sustainable and that interest rates should be like 40 or 50% because nobody can afford the debt. You know, the only re it's only because we lie about the prices of debt that we can afford it. So if the lie gets uncovered, well then obviously like the clear and stupidly transparent truth is that nobody has any savings to go around. The price of debt should be related to the amount of savings available. But the way the petrodollar system works is that all we the only thing that we can do to actually get by, to not go into a feedback loop of crashing, is, uh, is to run deficits, uh, which again, in the long term, kills us. But that's because in the short term, it would kill us too. Like We basically set ourselves up with either paying a massive price in the long term or paying a massive price in the short term. So it's like any political expedient option, like any political regime period is just going to say, well, let's take the long-term option. Let's push it on to the next guy because I really don't want to do that right now. So instead of having market rates and correcting back to the real world and the truth of our economic reality, we print our way out of it. We fix our hangover with a giant bottle of vodka. We pay off our credit card with another credit card and pretend that there is not a problem. And... And we just see how many more years we can push this off and how much worse we can make the inevitable correction. Now, there's a section that she goes into uh, uh, towards the, like, just kind of showing what the consequences of this are. And this is, this is the source of the Bitcoin fixes this meme. People do not understand just how many of our massive systemic problems come from our monetary system, come from how the petrodollar system works. Think about the fact that all of these, all of these wars, all of this political struggle, all of this, when do we print money and when do we actually buy foreign reserves, this constant tussle, this constant back and forth between whether or not we need imports or exports to not have a huge downturn in the economy, all of these huge trade deficits that we basically cannot get ourselves out of, the wealth concentration that has moved the money to where the sources or where the money is actually sourced because the the wealthy, the the you know people near the money spigot get it at low interest rate and basically take capital assets and uh, things that do not devalue from the lower classes while they get stuck in wages. So, and that's exactly why. That's exactly why you got the charts like the 1971, WTF happened in 1971, how productivity has divorced completely from the median wage because the productivity is being soaked up by debt. 
is being fueled by debt, which means it's getting paid. That excess is getting paid in interest rates up to the top to the people who are getting the new money. So it's not savings anymore. It's not actual production. It's how close you are to the money creation mechanism. It's the Cantillon effect. That's why you have the top 1% now have as much as the bottom 90%, which is a huge shift from just 30 or 40 years ago um, where uh, uh, wealth was far more equally distributed. There's always going to be inequality, but it's not, it shouldn't be getting worse. It shouldn't constantly and endlessly get worse. That is because of our monetary system. And then the fact that we're having all of these horrible consequences as a result that our net investment um, uh, in the U.S. to GDP is one of the worst in the world, that the United States is ranked 27 for social mobility. It's basically at the bottom of all the developed countries, that after 30 years of inflation in the, the industries, the, the few industries that have benefited, that have skyrocketed in price, like housing, um, uh, cars, government, uh, healthcare, like all of these in college, oh God, education, Jesus, like all of these things have skyrocketed in price. And now when one, a normal median wage of like a single male could more than cover all of those costs 30 years ago, 40 years ago with a significant gap, the chart that she has in there shows like how the median wage was actually like, it was like 20% higher than all of the normal costs of uh, having a family. And that in 2013, 14 and 15, it crossed under. Everything is skyrocketing in price so high that now you can't get by on a single median wage. It does not cover the cost of a family. And at the same time that CEOs went from 20 times, the payment for a CEO went from 20 times the average worker to over 200 times. And this is all while CEOs have shifted from being engineers and people who are actually making products in their companies to marketers. To people who know how to play the stock buyback game, the people who know how to play the, the political game and get the lobbyists, it's become a self-fulfilling system where the game doesn't have to do with productivity anymore. The game has to do with how well you play your other, the other players, or more importantly, how well you play the referee who changes the game and changes the rules whenever they feel like it. And you just have to be near them and make sure that they change the game in your favor when they do. This is what the Bitcoin fixes this meme is all about. All of these problems and our foreign wars and everything to tack on top of it are directly tied to simply how our monetary system works. Without it, none of these things would have trended or would exist like they do today. And then you get into some of the inefficiencies of this system. So uh, back to like, think about this, all of these dynamics that she talks about in one country having foreign reserves and then paying down their foreign reserves to get their, um, you know, like, let's say their currency weakens. Uh, so now imports are more expensive and uh, will lead to, you know, potentially some devaluation or whatever. So they sell their foreign reserves to, to bolster their own currency so that um, uh, they can get more imports. Um, and then obviously in the reverse, if you're um, reliant on exports, 
that you can print your own currency to devalue and uh, basically bolster your exports. And that you have to play this game. This is a constant political struggle between this country and this country of to how many obligations they have or uh, liabilities that are external or internal. And they play this game to make sure that some other countries shift in economic well-being or the shift in the value of their currency relative to this other currency um, doesn't basically destroy their economy. That their like that their own currency getting stronger would be bad for their economy. And this whole game has to be played. This is massive inefficiency. This is huge cost. And that all of this mess, having to manage the currencies and the foreign reserves, to have to hold treasuries and fight to get the currency to go up when it's falling, to, and, and, and vice versa, this is all a massive imbalancing and inefficiency, a cost, and a point of astonishing central failure in all of these countries that is a consequence of them each being forced to use their own currency and not having a global standard. All of it is made obsolete if these countries are using an independent currency by a single independent global monetary standard. It's it's specifically because they're having to fight the devaluation against other currencies. That's that's why we talk about it, like uh, talk about it on the show. It's it's a race to the bottom because everybody doesn't want to be the strong currency because of what it does to their economic well-being, what it does to their ability to export and or import. So any country, when we start to move into this phase of Bitcoin, any country that adopts Bitcoin or any economies regardless of the political atmosphere, that without, with or without their government permission, uh, adopt Bitcoin and start using Bitcoin for trade, both internationally and locally, will vastly outperform the legacy fiat markets. They will be speaking the same monetary language, and they won't constantly have to shift in response to what's going on somewhere else. The constant battle to devalue against the rest will not be there. It's a problem that exists between different currencies, not within one currency. So what was an import-export problem between countries becomes an issue that just exists at the individual level. It becomes nothing but a problem of productivity and balances of money versus the amount of capital. For anyone who adopts an independent global Bitcoin standard, the currency game is relegated to the history books. So this is where she gets back into, you know, what does it look like trying to go back to some, some sort of global standard? And talks about the Bancor and, you know, SDRs and then even, you know, a privately issued option like Libra. But what's funny about these is I don't really think these solve that problem because... Maybe in a degree with international trade, like it's still simplified with having an indip- uh, a global standard, but if it's still behind a basket of currencies, you'll still have the issues of dealing with, like, like countries will still have their own currencies in order to relate to the international standard. It's how much of their currency is held in reserve and uh, what's, the, what's the trade-off or what's the um, exchange rate between their currency and the bank or, or whatever it is. 
So it doesn't seem to solve that inefficiency. But something else she points out that I think is way more important is that this would require a massive amount of cooperation and agreement. This would basically mean setting up some new institution that controls it. This is an entirely centralized and um, centrally controlled. Uh, just like she said with Libra, it's a centralized form of decentralization. Trying to spread out the value and the basket of assets that this is based on, but it still needs someone to manage it. It is still a some sort of global uh, a, a, a global institution that now has control over the currency. And it doesn't, you know, maybe it's made up of the U.S. and China and Russia and whoever, but it doesn't really matter. It's still a single point of control over who is deciding and what the decisions about a global currency are that affect everyone. And uh, as she said, this requires a massive amount of cooperation and agreement, which I don't see happening. In fact, just the opposite. It looks like tensions are getting worse. It looks like the, the geopolitical atmosphere is getting more fractured and like uh, people are basically at each other's throats more than, uh, than less. I see a lot of geopolitical agreements and uh, unions breaking down, not coming together. Like, can you see a hundred countries getting together and just being like, okay, yes, we all agree and it's going to be great that we are on this new standard. And I, in fact, I kind of think the fact that there is a SDR, that Libra is trying to happen, that there's a Bancor, that everybody's talking about CBDCs and, you know, starting their own. China's looking at doing one. The Federal Reserve has talked about it. Just suggests that we're not finding a standard that we're just rushing to try to have our all have our own little tools um, to use where we are the ones in control. But this is where Bitcoin is perfect. Another brilliant Bitcoin meme. Bitcoin is for enemies. There is no central party to worry about. You don't have to worry that China, Russia and the US are the ones, you know, if they're the ones that are the dominant controllers of the Bancor and the dominant ones deciding what the monetary policy of the Bancor is, well, then they're going to they're going to screw all the little guys. Little guys are not part of that system. What do they use to not be just solely at the mercy of the giants, of the, the dominant military and economic powers? Bitcoin specifically works when there is no international cooperation or agreement. When they can't decide on a politically viable solution, it is the apolitical money. It is the one where they don't have to come to agreement over what the monetary policy should be because they don't have any say over the Bitcoin monetary policy. China and India can do business with each other with, uh, or Iran or whoever it is with Bitcoin because India knows China doesn't control it and China knows India doesn't control it. Whereas if it was the Bancor, and let's say China has a dominant position in the Bancor, India doesn't want to use the Bancor if they know they're just going to get the shaft um, if, uh, you know, China decides that they need to change it. Bitcoin is for enemies. Bitcoin is specifically for that place and for those agreements where you don't know if you can trust the other person. In other words, a fractured geopolitical agreement, a fractured uh, a political systems and, uh, you know, political regimes, uh, basically in, con in uh, contesting each other, 
that is a terrible environment to try to set up a new global political agreement, but it is a prime environment for Bitcoin to start to get its claws into uh, all sorts of, particularly the smaller nations and the nations that have been screwed over by this system already. Iran being a great example, already taking advantage of it and seeing just how powerful of a tool it may, uh, may be in the coming years. But her section, when she gets into, when Lynn Alden gets into uh, Bitcoin, uh, it, there's, <laughs> there's, there's something in the way she talks about that that I just thought, it just kind of felt to me, maybe I'm, maybe I'm reading something into it just because I got real fired up there in the Bitcoin section, but it just seemed like she just kind of had like a little oomph and like really liked like going in there with the Bitcoin element and uh and the story the game of thrones analogy that she used like that's the only time in the whole article that i could really think of that like she had a little bit of fun <laughs> you know what i mean um and uh such a oh just a fire analogy it's to use a game of thrones analogy as the leaders of the seven kingdoms feud among themselves in order to control the iron throne and subsequently rule all of westeros a small but exponentially growing threat of inhuman white walkers quietly builds from beyond the wall, far outside of the luxurious castles, seeking to supplant the established system and render their petty human squabbles over the throne moot. Bitcoin is the ace in the hole. Uh, Bitcoin is that playing card in this new environment that doesn't follow any of these rules and that if adopted um, could actually eliminate so many of these inefficiencies and wipe out the, the imbalances and the constant back and forth struggle that causes so many of these huge systemic problems. Uh, and she actually even like makes a note of this, like talking about how like Bitcoin could um, play this role is that quote Bitcoin is verifiable, provable, requires no trust or cooperation. It doesn't require people to politically get along, um, other than agreement between parties to use it, and it works well for large, irreversible international transactions. Iran can subsidize Iranian Bitcoiners with electricity resources, buy the Bitcoins they generate, use those Bitcoins for international trade. End quote. I think we're going to see a lot of this. Um, the subsidizing and prioritizing of Bitcoin mining and energy production at home because of this. Um, and uh, the U.S. comptroller of the currency, uh, I can't remember his name, was just talking about this actually the other day. That um, it referred to Bitcoin as potentially Internet 2.0. Um, that uh, it may become a, a politically strategic um a critically important strategic uh, operation to have your own mining, to be able to um, essentially know that you are not dependent on the mining in China for your confirmations. If they hold 51%, well, then the U.S. is kind of at China's mercy in a way as to whether or not their confirmations, their uh, transactions get confirmed. So if, you know, the U.S. can give a little bit of a boost, give a subsidy, or um, divert some uh, other energy production to Bitcoin mining and bump up another 10%, well, then that knocks China down to 45 and we're solid. We know they can't reverse any U.S. government transactions. 
This is why I think the energy market and the Bitcoin mining market are going to be married. The idea that we talk about in the political sense of energy independence, I think is going to be um, essentially the exact same conversation, but referred to as Bitcoin independence. That are you monetarily independent as a nation on Bitcoin or using Bitcoin? And that will require that you have enough hash power that you know there is no single country that can essentially reverse your transactions with how much hash power they have. Now, there's one other thing that I want to hit before we close this out. Um, uh, before I do, though, one last thank you to our awesome sponsors for this show um, and have made it worthwhile for me to be in front of the microphone day in and day out. Um, and this was an amazing piece. Thank you to Lynn Alden. Uh, really for, she just has an awesome newsletter. If you guys are not checking this out, you're, you're missing it. I can't obviously read all of her pieces on the show, but they are all amazing. And I would definitely recommend checking them out at lynnalden.com. Uh, obviously links to all this great stuff in the show notes, but a thank you to Hexa wallet for, uh, the, their mobile wallet solution. Um, they are a great non-custodial wallet and there are a lot of crappy wallets out there. So and scammy ones too. So, you know, be wary of that. Uh, use Hexa, H-E-X-A. Go to guyswan.com slash Hexa. Uh, then we've got Hardware Wallet, um, the best in the business, uh, Bitbox O2. Um, just absolutely in love with this thing. Uh, check them out at guyswan.com slash Bitbox. And lastly, Level.co. If they are in your state, you have got to, you've got to sign up and use them just so you can tell me all about it. They are a free Bitcoin exchange and banking service, full banking services. Um, uh, hold it in Bitcoin dollars, whatever, LVL, level.co. All right, so one of her last sections in uh, the Bitcoin, uh, the little Bitcoin conversation, really hit something that I think, uh, I don't think is possible in the sense that she suggested it. Um, is that if Bitcoin survives, there is no niche market. And here's why. So uh, actually, you know what, let me just hit the uh, quote uh, so that we have a good foundation here. Even if it never reaches the scale that some Bitcoin proponents believe it might, it could still be used as part of a global monetary system, either as an additional neutral reserve asset or by smaller, isolated countries that make use of some of its features with relatively little way for other nations to stop them from doing so, as Iran seems to be doing. This is where I think Bitcoin is inevitable. Um, this, if this happens, Bitcoin wins. I really don't think there is a way for it to stay in a niche market like that. Um, unless there is something really wrong with the security of it at some amount of capital. If for some reason that after it's $10 trillion that you can't safely use it, which doesn't seem to make sense. It seems like the feedback loop is the opposite, that as it gets more valuable, the more secure it is. So um, uh, it seems like that's not an issue, but maybe, maybe there's something we're not foreseeing. I don't know. Maybe just the general idea of uh, something that's you know supported by economic incentives or something that's supported by cryptography. Maybe it has some sort of threshold about how much it can be trusted. Again, doesn't seem to make any sense to me. And it seems like the bigger this thing gets, the safer it is. 
and the more secure it is and the better the economic incentives play out. But, you know, we don't know. We don't know. So I'll, I'll leave that open. Uh, but if this gets to a point where there are a handful of countries using this as a partial neutral reserve asset or um, specifically countries that are trying that are being censored or um, have less sovereignty, essentially, um, are then using it for imports and exports in order to do trade that essentially the powers that be cannot control, then the feedback loop on Bitcoin taking over, I think, is unstoppable at that point. The scarcity of 21 million cannot be contested. At the end of the day, this is the hardest money. This is the most sound money that has ever been entered, and it is entering into an environment where all other monies are specifically and incredibly abundant, that the supply is just exploding all across the board. And so if this gets used by, you know, a set of small nations in some niche way, like it enters the fray in that way, it eventually takes over because the capital return and appreciation of those countries that adopt it will literally never stop. All productive growth will be accrued to the money within the economy that uses it. And Bitcoin has no supply elasticity. So it all, so the only thing that happens is that the price of it goes up and it continues the feedback loop. This is why people refer to it as a value black hole. If this starts, there's no stopping it unless the risks or the security of the system itself appear to be in threat for some reason. And then lastly, she's got another quote. This is the one we're going to end it on, is that, quote, Meanwhile, the Bitcoin community has different views of what the asset means. There is no unified vision within the community, but rather a set of different views for the long-term potential of the protocol. Some view it as the world's future money. Others view it as digital gold, a store of value, or a bank in cyberspace that will exist alongside sovereign-issued currencies, end quote. This is actually a huge strength for Bitcoin. Because as it gets more valuable, people will build for all of these cases. Bitcoin will be all of these visions. Just like people at the beginning of the internet saw it for so many different purposes. Some people saw it as a tool for fast text communication. Some people saw it as a replacement to outdated voice phone infrastructure. Some saw it as an eventual way to replace cable television with a computer screen. Some saw it as a way to revolutionize retail. Some, uh, some envisioned a massive decentralized publishing platform where anybody could be a journalist or a TV star or a writer and that there were no barriers to entry. Some saw it as a tool for working in distant countries or location and uh, uh, democratizing work. Some considered it a way to stay in touch with all of your friends and family at all times of the day. And there happened to be a group of cypherpunks who saw it as a way to empower dissidents and whistleblowers with privacy networks, encryption, and information that moves around the world at the speed of light. You know what it became? All of those things. All of them. And that is what's going to happen to Bitcoin. Each person who sees the possibility of Bitcoin in some specific use case will build the tools for that use and that vision. And it does not have to change for it to work. TCPIP didn't change for all of those things to be made possible. And it didn't stop them, doesn't, didn't stop people from trying to make uh, alternative protocols and networks that had these things built in. 
but it's still accrued to TCPIP. It will be a foundational platform for money. It will be a global payments platform with lightning and side chains. It'll be custom financial services that are non-custodial with shadow chains and DLCs. It'll be a global store of value and digital gold. It'll be a platform for decentralized infrastructure and redesigning the internet itself for resiliency, privacy, and censorship resistance because now we finally have the decentralized money to actually fund it all with. And I think when people see just how limitless the things are that we can build on this, and then you combine that with perfect scarcity, 21 million uncontestably, there is no stopping this thing. And we are lucky enough to witness it. This is Bitcoin Audible. I will catch you all next time. And until then, take it easy, guys. This has been a 111 production, and you were listening to Bitcoin Audible on the Crypto Economy Network.